Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Jonah, chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, a three days walk across. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's walk, and he cried out, Forty days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they proclaimed a fast, and everyone, great and small, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Then he had a proclamation made in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, no human being or animal, no herd or flock shall taste anything. They shall not feed, nor shall they drink water. Human beings and animals shall be covered with sackcloth, and they shall cry mightily to God. All shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. Who knows? God may relent and change his mind. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Good morning and welcome again to Worship with Peachtree Christian Church. Thank you so much for joining us from home. You may have noticed already that we are a bit sparsely staffed this morning. Uh, both Dr. Longbonds and Dr. Wortman had uh, exposure to COVID this, during the week and were not able to get reliable test results until later. And so please pray for them, for their families, that their results are negative and that they will stay safe and healthy. Uh, let us pray as we prepare to hear the word of the Lord. Most merciful God, we confess that we have expected too little of you and therefore made our hopes and our actions little. Open our ears to receive your word. Open our hearts to release prejudice and grudges. Open our imaginations to receive hope. Open our hands to release the ways and weapons to which we cling. Open our eyes to see with your mercy. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Have you ever walked into a conversation just as someone was finishing a joke and you catch the ending but miss the entire setup? And you're left kind of awkwardly chuckling, not because you get the joke, but because maybe everybody else is laughing. And there is something humorous in the missing piece itself. What could the setup have possibly been for that punchline? Movies and television shows will use this uh, device called an orphan punchline uh, to 
uh, slide a character and the viewer into some new situation. And the lectionary passage this morning drops us into Jonah's adventure with something of an orphaned punchline, if we have the ears to hear. But we would, we would have to go back to the setup, the very first words opening the book of Jonah. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And the Lord gives him almost word for word the same message and mission that he gave him in our text this morning. Since then, Jonah has absurdly tried to run and hide from God. He's uh, played some death dice with some very considerate sailors. He's been thrown overboard in a, in a storm, swallowed whole by a gargantuan fish, and then unceremoniously vomited back up on the shore. And then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. It, it's what comedians refer to as a callback. Uh, in fact, there are many who have read Jonah in its entirety as a sort of humorous parable or even as a farce, uh, an intentionally absurd comedy. In any case, I think that if we read Jonah as the straightforward and serious account of a prophet's mission, uh, we do ourselves a disservice and we miss layers of irony and subversion when compared with other prophetic literature, everything is upside down. No one acts as expected. Uh, the prophet that God chooses is petty and bitter and selfish, while uh, the sailors that he meets uh, do not have uh, the usual reputation of sailors. They're very gentle and fair and faithful. An enormous fish acts as an agent of salvation uh, then this regurgitated fishbait prophet, rather than uh, pages of poetic proclamation or surprising performances like other prophets, walks through the city reluctantly uttering what commentators have noted is a one-sentence sermon with no mention of God and not a word of hope. Forty days more and Nineveh will be overthrown. Forty days more, Nineveh will be overthrown five words in Hebrew. And he only gets a third of the way through this massive city, and suddenly the entire population is all too ready to repent. And the king himself orders a society-wide fast all the way down to the animals. Let me say that again. The king decrees that the animals repent and pray. Because as he says, who knows? Maybe God is merciful. Never has there been a more successful doomsday prophet with as little effort. But this one is upset that people even listened to him. And so he storms off out of the city and complains that he would rather die. The whole thing, in a way, is one big joke. But it is a very serious joke. There are countless variations of similar quotes, but Mark Twain once said that humor is the good-sided nature of a truth. So the question is, what is the truth in this comedy? I spoke with Rabbi Sam Kay across the street at the temple this week about the book of Jonah, and he informed me 
that in their own annual cycle, they read Jonah each year on the afternoon of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, because this passage, possibly more than most others in the Hebrew Scriptures, puts on magnificent display God's grace, His readiness to forgive and reconcile with humanity. So this may be the truth in the comedy, God's mercy, which is so vastly beyond our own that it takes an absurd and subversive story like Jonah to even imagine it. So if this is the case, what do we learn in the absurdity about God's mercy? First of all, it seems that nothing can stop the persistent and pervasive mercy of God. It has no regard for supposedly realistic circumstances and expectations. It works in and through gruff sailors, a gargantuan fish, an enemy king, hungry livestock, and even, even Jonah, this half-hearted herald. Despite his unhelpful and hopeless message, the mystery of mercy still works deep in the hearts of Nineveh, and all of them somehow already know what to do. And so what do they do? They proclaimed a fast, and everyone, great and small, put on sackcloth. Then the king joins them and orders repentance, fasting, and prayer throughout the whole city. This shows how God's mercy works not just in individual hearts and relationships, but on a societal scale. This exceedingly large city, the people, the king, and yes, even the animals, join in changing their ways. Just as sin works in our shared patterns of believing and living, not just our individual behaviors, but our collective life, so also does repentance, forgiveness, and mercy. And philosopher Jacques Ellul says that this moment in Nineveh shows us the seemingly impossible solution to social sin which involves both, quote, the conversion of the entire population and its government, unquote. Repentance, change, and reconciliation require both personal and political response. We cannot separate our experience of mercy from our responsibility to our neighbor our community, our city. As Ulul continues, we are subjects of the city and involved in its condemnation, and yet we are the possible artisans of her adoption by God. The story of Nineveh allows us to see an entire city, evil as it is, pivoting and striving in a new 
direction, acting as a community with creativity, with mutual commitment, and with cooperation. This massive and diverse population suddenly realize that their destiny is shared and that the way forward requires that they sit together, that they work together, that they pray together. Now again, this is a humorous parable, not a blueprint for social change. Our own works of mercy are not likely to elicit the same kind of immediate and miraculous citywide response. However, what shines through the ridiculous response of Nineveh is that our efforts to seek God's justice and mercy in our city must be both spiritual and systemic. Nineveh's response is bottom-up and top-down, by devotion and by decree. And when this happens, the text says that God saw and changed his mind. I'm not sure if there's another phrase in Scripture that's more anxiety-inducing for modern readers than God changed his mind. We thought we were dealing with a God who is the same yesterday and today and tomorrow, not some fickle, flip-flopping sky tyrant. We want a dependable and on-time God to satisfy our innate sense of, of order and meaning and justice. We may be in for surprise. But saying God's mind changes has more to do with the moments when we realize that we were wrong about what God wants and wills, the moments that upset our assumptions. This is not to say that God changing his mind is merely a mythological phrase that ancients used that we later enlightened generations can dismiss and explain away. Instead, it names the limits and illusions of humanity in every age. It names the radical freedom of God beyond our control and our comprehension. And God's freedom is always bent toward mercy. God's freedom is always bent toward mercy. And this realization the relief and the joy of Nineveh leaves Jonah sulking nearby. If you need a visual for this, uh, you may have, uh, you likely have seen the, the, uh, the many, many versions of the meme of Bernie Sanders sitting at the inauguration slumped over with his mittens on his lap. Just this morning I saw one uh, that had uh, it was some, some geek of the lectionary had the Jonah passage with God forgives Nineveh, and it says Jonah, and there's Bernie Sanders underneath a tree in the desert. So if you need a visual, as I said, this is a pretty humorous parable, so maybe you can use that. Uh, but immediately after this morning's merciful message, Jonah complains to the heavens. This is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning, for I knew 
You're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, ready to relent from punishing. In other words, this realization doesn't come as too much of a surprise to Jonah. He says that he knew what God was going to do all along because he recognized, realized that God's sense of mercy and justice is infinitely, and for him, infuriatingly, beyond our own. So Jonah is not ready to move on and to make amends. In our time, when it seems that blame and bitterness abound, Jonah's angsty grudge might not sound so strange. Uh, There may even be some of us who have entertained the fantasy of taking a step back and watching it all burn. But the story instead invites us to sit with Jonah outside the city walls and take a serious look at the absurd and disturbing mercy of God. Imagine the true repentance of your true enemies who you truly believe are in the wrong. When that happens and you win your enemy, not win against or over your enemy, but win your enemy back to yourself, are you actually ready for unity? Are you prepared to set aside, to get over any sense of superiority or righteousness? Is the end goal of your words and your work to be right or to be reconciled? God is ready to forgive. Are you? If not, this whole joke may be on us. If we who are called by God with a mission and message of mercy remain narrow-minded, bitter, and unable or unwilling to imagine God's mercy extending beyond our own, then we may find ourselves wallowing outside the city walls where God's mercy has made possible a new future. And this is how the whole comedy ends, with an open question to Jonah and to every reader. God has changed his mind. Will you change yours?